Melissa Murray is a superstar in the legal profession. In part two of our conversation, Melissa takes us inside her interview with then-judge and now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor when Melissa interviewed for a clerkship. Melissa details how Justice Sotomayor became a mentor to her and why she credits Justice Sotomayor with creating the opportunity that led to Melissa becoming a law professor. She also shares the inspiration behind her award-winning article titled Marriage as Punishment, which is a truly fascinating look at modern marriage through a historical lens to a time when the act of seduction was a crime. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the law without it killing us. You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney. Sage. Visionary. Warrior. Unfiltered. No holds barred. Iron Advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself. So, Melissa, you mentioned this this idea of you did sort of obliquely of mentoring, or there were and there were no women like you as role models. And I just want to pivot for a second. You you clerked for then Judge Sotomayor, is that right? I did. All right, and now obviously a justice in the Supreme Court. Has she been a mentor to you? Totally. Um, I, I would not have this career without her support. I mean, I mean full stop. Um, you know, one is just sort of the credential of having clerked for a federal judge, any federal judge, I think, that gave me a kind the sort of imprimatur of legitimacy that I think I needed as an African-American woman. So there was that. And then there was also, I think, just her interventions. Like, you know, I remember when I was on the teaching market looking for a fellowship. This was like sort of before I actually became a law professor. I had to find a fellowship where I could just go sit for two years and work on my scholarship and, and, and just like, you know, sort of learn how to be a teacher. And she called up someone at Columbia Law School that, you know, she had been fielding all of these recommendations from over the years. She's like, I have this great clerk She's been working on with me on this class that I teach for Columbia. And, you know, you should really interview her. She would be great. And she just reached out and did that. And I, you know, and I got that job. Like, you know, I went and interviewed, got that job. I went to Columbia for two years and then went to Berkeley, have, like having secured a tenure track position. Having someone who could just pick up the phone like that and would pick up the phone like that was just invaluable. I mean, I, I can't like, that's ex- like not just a mentor, but a sponsor. Well, and, and one of the things we talk about in Iron Advocate is, is helping people find their way through the law and, and mentoring is something that comes up, you know, time and again. And I know that we've, there was a study that I read, I think it was, I think I read it in the Atlantic about mentoring and, and how, it's a such an obvious statement. What a huge difference maker it is, and that's not even you know that's a precursor to sponsorship, as you said. And having somebody mentor you, the one of the key ingredients is you have to the the person who is mentoring has to be reminded of themselves 
somehow in order to get that mentee, that connection. Yeah. And I think that's one of the issues that, that is lacking, especially um, in the areas we're talking about. Was there something about, you think, you that reminded Justice Sotomayor of herself? So I'll tell you the story of um, how I interviewed with her. So I, I totally went about the whole clerkship application process ass backwards. Like, you know, I just decided like I could only live in a city. I could only work for a judge of color because I wanted a mentor, um, which, you know, if you're sort of limiting yourself to major metropolitan areas and judges of color in those major metropolitan areas, you're basically applying to 17 judges in the whole country. And so I was applying to this very limited pool. Um, that's the first mistake. They tell you when you apply for clerkships, you just have to apply broadly across the country, like hundreds of applications. And, and I didn't do that. And I was lucky to get a clerkship. Um, really lucky that she plucked me out of the pool and decided to interview me. She did that because one of my recommenders, a professor, a, not an African-American woman, um, but a woman at Yale wrote a letter for me. And you know, this was someone she trusted. And she's like, okay, I'll give her a chance, bring her in. And I went there and first you interview with the clerks and you know, it's fine. They ask you about your resume. They talk to you about like issues that they're dealing with on their docket. How would you handle this? Blah, blah, blah. And then you get ushered in to talk to her. And I, you know, this is sort of the moment and I'm waiting for her questions. Think it's going to be some really nitpicky question about law. I'm going to impress her and show her how smart I am, this whole thing. And her question to me is, tell me about your family. Mm -hmm. And it was the one question I had not been prepared for, um, in part because, you know, there I was in my second year at Yale and I didn't really talk about my family a lot because my family circumstances were so different from, or at least I imagined they were so different from my classmates. You know, I had this mom who was a widow. She was a nurse. She didn't make a lot of money. I was funding my law school education independently. Um, you know, my dad had died. Like, I, I just, like, at Yale, privilege really seemed like a presumption. And if you didn't have it, you just kind of didn't talk about it. I mean, that was sort of just how it was. Uh, I think I think it's very different now for students just across the board. But like then, it just didn't feel like it was something you could be open about. And so I had not been prepared to talk to her about this. And she's just the kind of person where you find yourself telling her things that you would not tell other people. And so, you know, I told her, like, you know, my dad was diabetic and, you know, for much of my life, he was really ill and, you know, I had to help him, give him these shots. And, and then he died when I was 17 and she's just nodding and nodding. And I'm just like, bleh, bleh. And my mom's a nurse. Mm. I'm bleh, bleh. <laughs> and yeah. Oh, like, it's so touching. Thing. Well, and, and, and then I leave, you know, so I'm ushered out and, I'm on the train back to New Haven and I'm like just in tears. Like, you know, that was my chance to impress her. And here am I telling her about my, my crazy family and like my dad and he was so sick and this whole thing. And it was just awful. And then, you know, like then later, you know, I do get an offer, which is totally surprising. And, you know, I go to work for her, whatever. Fast forward to 2010 when her book comes out, My Beloved World. And, you know, I had known bits and pieces about her story from clerking for her. But um, when I read her biography, was that was like my first time to sort of seeing it all laid out. And as I read her autobiography, 
it was the first time I realized that for years, I assumed I had blown this interview by telling her all of these things about myself. And in fact, it wasn't that I had gotten this clerkship in spite of what I said. It was that I had gotten it because of what I said, that this idea that you know, she saw in me so many things, I think, that mapped onto her life, like the diabetic mm. father having to give him shots of insulin. Like, you know, she, she understood that. Um, the mother who was a nurse, her mother was a nurse, like just, you know, the immigrant family, like all of this resonated with her in a way that I just did not recognize in that moment. And it didn't really come together for me, even while I was clerking with her, because it had never been sort of laid out that way. And it was the first time I realized that I only got that clerkship because in that moment, she had sort of lulled me into being my authentic self. You were vulnerable. You were genuine and you were vulnerable. And and, and I was completely honest um, in a way that I probably wasn't even in law school about right. my situation to other people. That's such you a weren't le- lawyering with her. Yeah. I was like, I was just like, this is what happened. I mean, that's such a lesson for all lawyers, young and old wow. lawyers, which is, you know, be your authentic self and be genuine and, and you'll connect with people. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an oversimplification yeah. of how to be a great advocate. Um, and you see that from her. I mean, she is her authentic self on the bench. Like when she does those Fourth Amendment cases and she talks, and, you know, like, has no one else here had a cousin or a family member who's been stopped by the police? And everyone's like looking around. And she's like, okay, well, I have. Like, it, and you just, like, it just, it makes such a difference, I think. So can we ask you in, in um, it's funny, you mentioned that, that just now Justice Sotomayor's book was, I think, released in 2010. Um, that that was the same year that you uh, you won some awards for an article titled "Marriage's Punishment" that was published in the Columbia Law Review. We're taking you back a little bit. And we love the title. <laughs> as, as a divorce <laughs> lawyer, I love the title. In COVID nineteen, so as, as a divorce lawyer, Jeff's redundant. Like, <laughs> Jeff's like, can I take that as a blog entry? So um, the article does like a fairly deep dive on very deep dive on marriage as a vehicle for you know, state control over individuals and families, everything from like sex to medical benefits, childcare. Um, can you talk about how you came to sort of so passionately and intellectually call into question this, you know, really probably largest societal institution that there is and, and where that comes from? Um, so, That article was written, like, I think in the throes of the marriage equality debate. So Obergefell would be decided in 2015. And I was working on this probably from 2008 until when it was published um, in 2010. Um, Yeah, 20, was it 2010, 2011, something like that. Um, I thought it was so interesting in the whole discussion around marriage equality that marriage is sort of taken as this unvarnished good, right? That the the only real question was, you know, should we expand it to include more people? And I was like, that's really interesting um, because there are so many people who don't get married. Um, So Marriage Punishment was written probably in between 2009, 2012, and it was sort of in the throes of the marriage equality debate. And the whole sort of discussion about marriage was so interesting during that period. Um, you know, you had people like Ted Olson writing in Time Magazine, you know, the conservative case for gay marriage. And he's like, you know, marriage is fundamentally 
a conservative institution where people are expected to be monogamous and supportive of each other. Like, why wouldn't we want to expand this and include gay men and women in it? Like, I mean, there's nothing especially radical about marriage. And I was like, yeah, like, that's right. That seems right. Um, and I was thinking about that and thinking about all of the people who live their lives outside of marriage and how much scrutiny and judgment is leveled at them about that, um, about the choice to be outside of marriage or to have children outside of marriage. And this paper was sort of an attempt to kind of think about that through the lens of history. And so I had been doing another paper about statutory rape that came out in 2010. That paper is called Strange Bedfellows. Um, there was this Kansas, Nebraska statutory rape case that I was like absolutely fascinated with. And, you know, I wrote this whole paper about um, how this couple had been charged with statutory rape in Nebraska, but they had married each other in Kansas. And so was the fact of their Kansas marriage enough to absolve them of the statutory rape prosecution in Nebraska? And it was like the whole thing. And in the process of researching that case, I came across a whole range of cases from the 19th and early 20th century involving this crime called seduction uh, that apparently was actually really prevalent in this period. Um, so about 34 American jurisdictions had seduction laws on the books. And the crime of seduction was basically cajoling a woman into having sex with you by telling her that you were going to marry her um, at some point in the near future. It's sort of like, this doesn't matter if we have sex now because we're going to be married anyway, and this will all be legal and whatnot, but then you actually don't marry her, right? So you, you sort of, it sort of, it was meant to kind of bridge the divide between marriage and rape and sort of acknowledge that there were sort of episodes of sex that could be more coercive than consensual, but also consensual and not nearly as coercive as rape. So sort of right in the middle. And the interesting thing about seduction, though, is um, there are all of these prosecutions, usually initiated by the woman's family, like her father or her brother would get the sheriff to come get you, and you get hauled into court, and the judge would read the charges, like explain the charge of seduction, and, you know, how do you plead? But before you pleaded, you had this opportunity to either recant or alternatively to marry the woman. And if you said that you would marry her, the prosecution was suspended, right? And they transformed this criminal trial into a marriage ceremony. They'd bring the woman in. The judge would, instead of sentencing you, would marry you to her. And then you would go off. But the prosecution wasn't eliminated. It was just sort of suspended. And if you weren't a good husband to her, if you abandoned her or if you cheated on her, they could revive the prosecution in the future and then just sort of have you, like, it was just suspended for a time period. So like marriage was kind of acknowledgement that even as it could serve as a defense to the crime, you weren't getting away with anything. Um, you had to be sober, you had to be economically supportive, you had to be monogamous. Um, she literally was a ball and chain for you. And so this idea that marriage kind of had this disciplinary or punitive aspect to it was so interesting. And it was so clear um, in this period in the 19th to 20th century that that's how they thought of it. It was a way of imposing sexual discipline on both the woman and the man who had, you know, sort of shown by 
their inability to remain chaste, that they were in need of correction in some way and, and marriage could provide it. Um, and, and if marriage did not provide it or they didn't consent to the marriage, well, the other alternative was the penitentiary. And so, you know, thinking about that history, I thought was so interesting in this moment where all we could talk about with regard to marriage was how good it was and how important it was that we either expand marriage to include same-sex couples or we keep marriage just for opposite-sex couples. No one was actually talking about this is a kind of regulation, a form of discipline. And, um, you know, those who live their lives outside of marriage, I think, see it all the time. But we weren't really thinking about how marriage itself could be a, a mode of imposing discipline. And so it was like a historical article. My husband hates the title. It won all of these prizes. And my husband- It's a great title. I, I have to tell you, the, the title, I mean, it, it's- Bob and I read the article, the piece. It, it What I found so interesting is it it was hiding in plain view. You, you yeah. took something that was right here and just shifted awareness on it. I was- how do I not see? I'm a, a divorce lawyer. I have no, I couldn't, how did I not see this before? I didn't know the seduction laws, which I thought were, that well, was. I mean, they're all gone now. I thought um, it was fascinating, like, uh, you know, tr- you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, view into a time gone by that underlines, though, a lot of how the institution came to be, right? The, the laws yeah. are gone, but the remnants of how society views this and the things that you outline in, in the law review piece are, are seen oh, today. Alive and well. Well, even in the way we joke about it, um, you know, the old ball and chain, I mean, like, that, I mean, right. that was real. Like, I mean, they definitely understood it in that way. Um, or Mae West, you know, marriage is an institution, but who wants to be institutionalized? Right? I'm not ready for an institution. Yeah. yeah. yeah when we, when we, we read this, and yesterday we're tossing around the Mae West uh, quote in, when we were prepping for this, uh, and I, I, I want to throw out there a recommendation. This is a law review article that anybody can and should read. It, it's really written... And let me ask the question. Did you write this realizing that like it'll be in a law review, uh, uh, but non-lawyers can read this and really love it? So I don't think any law professor has any illusion that anyone but law law students or law professors will re- read their work. I was actually surprised by how many people did read it. Um, apparently, when you Google seduction, it comes up almost immediately because there isn't a lot written about seduction. But um. A couple of years ago, I, th- I think this was in maybe 2013 or 14, uh, I got a call out of the blue from a producer for this TV show, Who Do You Think You Are, where they sort of research a celebrity's genealogy and, you know, they do like, like they bring the celebrity back and they sort of step through the family tree and, you know, identify some kind of problem and use genealogy to sort of hone in on it. Anyway, um, they were looking at a celebrity's family history and her great great grandmother had um had been married to a man who had been convicted of seduction and you know involving the great great grandmother and so they were like you know can you tell us about this i told them what i knew about seduction statutes they sent over a bunch of primary documents from an archive in arkansas that they wanted me to look at and so i looked at them i sort of explained the documents to them and then i think maybe like two weeks went by and then they called me back, wanted me to appear on the show to actually step through the documents with the celebrity. And I was like, oh, you know, sure, that sounds cool. 
wound up going to Arkansas, like the middle of like Arkansas and meeting Jennifer Goodwin, who used to be on that show, Big Love. And it was her great, great grandmother. And, you know, we taped this episode where, you know, I've got white gloves on and in the archives explaining to her <laughs> what seduction is, how this, it was, it was very cool. So it, I mean, it was, it was nice that it actually had a life beyond the law review. Um, and, you know, Jennifer Goodwin, I think at one point she was sort of talking about, wouldn't this make a good movie? Uh, like my grandmother's life would make yeah. a good movie. And I was like, it actually would make a terrific movie. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it is a great piece. Everybody should go on Google, find it, read it. Honest to God. So no, go ahead, Jeff. You. you know, really just great piece. Go ahead, Jeff. So I want to ask you a different question, Melissa. So, you know, we're taping this at the time of COVID-19 and the issues around um, the disparity in the country are, are really, they've been there for a long time, but they're now more spotlighted. And political civil unrest seems like something that's more um, likely, more and more likely. If the country underwent a radical change and leaders came to you and said, it's time for a new constitution and we would like you to be part of writing that. Where would you start? So it's funny that you should ask this because I'm involved in kind of a project that it's sort of just a project with different groups, sort of like, how would you sort of fix or amend the constitution? And, I actually don't think the Constitution as it's written is completely incompatible with a vision of progressive government or progressive policies. Um, you know, the Constitution as it was written was meant to be a document that provided for a limited federal government. And, and you know, this is sort of born of the framers experience with Britain during the American revolution and before, uh, you know, they had this period where, you know, they just come out of the American revolution and they were basically a confederation of 13 states and they couldn't do anything on a national scale because they were really 13 individual nations. So they couldn't coin money. They couldn't negotiate with foreign powers. They had to figure out a way to be centralized, but they were deeply, deeply worried about being centralized because for them, centralization equated with the aggrandizement of power in a parliament or some sort of legislative body that could then do things like pass laws like the Stamp Act and the T Act and whatnot. So they were really worried about what centralization would mean. Like they knew they needed to centralize in some way just to be able to conduct business, but they were really worried that centralization would be the same as aggrandizing power either in parliament or in an executive figure like a king or a president. And so the whole constitution is basically set up to allow for centralization while also minimizing or mitigating the risk of aggrandizing power in any one branch of government, right? So, you know, it's not surprising that of all of the provisions of the Constitution, Article One, which deals with Congress, is the most sort of explicit and elaborated. And, and they basically say, like, so we're going to have this Congress. Here are all of the things that it can do. And it can't do anything more than this, right? That's specific. Like, they, like this is all you get to do, Congress, because they're so worried about a parliament that will be tyrannical. Um, and then they get to the president and 
it's elaborated, but not the way that they've elaborated Article One. So they're definitely more worried, I think, about what Congress could do and how Congress might be over encroaching. But they're very clear, like, you know, there's going to be a president. Here's how it's going to run. Here are its limits. The one branch that they really kind of just sort of leave up to interpretation is the judicial branch. And they have no idea that the judiciary is going to evolve in the way that it does. Um, you know, Alexander Hamilton calls it the least dangerous branch. And, you know, Alexander Bickle later made that the title of his book about sort of the power of the judiciary. Like, ironically, the least dangerous branch is perhaps in some ways as important, maybe more important than the other two. Um, and so you know, I, I think if you sort of start from that frame, that the Constitution is about dividing power between those three branches of the federal government and then also dividing power between the federal government and the states. And in that division, no group, no, no power cannot be isolated and controlled or consolidated in any one area. And in that kind of division and diffusion of power lies the liberty that the people rely on. I think that's actually quite right. Um, you know, I sound like a libertarian or a conservative when I say this, but I think if you take that seriously, you have to be really troubled about something partisan gerrymandering, which apparently is a non-justiciable political question the courts can't deal with. I think you have to be really concerned that Congress has been hobbled in addressing voting rights issues um, because the court has struck down key provisions of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, the basic structure, which I think would uphold those provisions of the Voting Rights Act and would require federal courts to intervene to do something about partisan gerrymandering, all of those are structural issues that lend themselves to the disenfranchisement of individuals, like the loss of liberty. And, and that's the whole thing that the Constitution was meant to avoid. And so I, I think if you take the original document seriously, it's not a conservative constitution. It's not a libertarian constitution. It's not a progressive constitution. It's a structural document that understands that if the structures of democracy are operating properly, the people will be able to exercise liberty, protect their rights in the political process, and enjoy the liberty that was contemplated. To be clear, like I'm not absolving them of everything. I mean, like the Constitution also explicitly contemplates the perpetuation and maintenance of slavery, right? So, you know, in Article One, there's a three-fifths compromise, the discussion of maintaining the transatlantic slave trade until 1808, and then we'll shift to a self-reproducing slave population. And then in Article Four, there's the provision for the rendition of fugitive slaves back to slaveholding states. So, I mean, like if, if we had to start like cutting things, I'd probably cut all of those provisions and just sort of explicitly get them out of the Constitution. But the premise of the document, I think, is sound. This idea of diffusing power and having a structure that lends itself to democratic engagement, I think, is exactly right. So if we, if we can ask you sort of this to, to uh, bring things to a close, if you could, we like to end Iron Advocate big, if you could or had to um, sacrifice your life, be killed to accomplish one goal in our culture, what would it be? To die for this. Like I would actually die for this. Um, I think I like, can I get two? two sure. 
Okay. You can die twice on Iron Advocate. Okay. Um, <laughs> You've already done it once. Do you have another one? So I, I think one thing I, I think I legitimately die over is just sort of um, just the whole question of gender and race equality. Like, I mean, and I think about them again, intersectionally, I mean, I'm raising a black boy and a black girl. Um, I, I like whether it's in education or in the criminal justice system, like I just, there are times I'm just literally overwhelmed with the world I'm sending my children out into. And I, I don't even know how to process that. Um, so no. I, I, need, I don't even know what the answer. I'm just sort of saying broadly, it just to me seems like such an insurmountable problem that like the kind of stuff our kids are going to be faced with. And, you know, there's been progress certainly over our lifetimes, but not enough and, and not as quickly as it should be. I mean, like I want my children to be able to go running freely. Um, I want my kids to live in a world where, you know, they don't wear masks because there's a global pandemic, but if they did have to wear a mask, they weren't obliged to tip their masks to avoid being assumed to be um, a miscreant or something. So I think that would be the first one. Um, and then I think the second would be just like, I think I would like die for us as a society to recognize the degree to which women, largely women's labor actually subsidizes the productivity of our economy in ways that are invisible and utterly unrecognized. Like, and it just, to me, has been brought home by this pandemic. Um, like my ability to do my work depends so much on being able to send my kids to school where I can count on them being educated in a rational and responsible way. Um, it, it's like school doesn't just serve an educational function. It is actually a caregiving place. Uh, it serves a caregiving function for so many working parents. And these teachers are underpaid, under-resourced. And I think we're seeing it right now, like how much we depend on them, like our own productivity and whatever we're doing that contributes to the economy is actually dependent on being able to leave our kids in the care of these professionals who should be paid and rewarded like professionals. Um, in the same vein, I think about, you know, the ways in which I have in many ways subsidized my husband's career. Like, you know, law firms depend on the unpaid labor of those who are supporting the lawyers that work for them. And we don't talk about that a lot. Um, you know, and it works both ways. Um, you know, my husband subsidized my career in lots of different ways as well. Like, you know, taking the bar in three different jurisdictions, moving, all of that. But um, I just, I don't think we recognize the degree to which we have put off on the family the work of accommodating the dependence that has to be accommodated if we are all to be productive and contributing members of the economy. That's a good place to, to stop. And I just want to put a pin in that because there's a lot of opportunities for people in the days and years ahead to shift. And this is an ongoing conversation. We're going to have you back again sometime. Thank you very, for very much me. for this. All right. Thank thanks you. so much for having me. It was super fun. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in. Breathe out. And we'll see you next time.